If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, I want to read from verse 42 through verse number 47. Um, the events recorded here are those events that, um, that happened immediately after uh, the day of Pentecost and the great addition of 3,000 believers into the church, the, the church in Jerusalem. Um, so we, we turn here in the word of God to Acts chapter and before we read, let me uh, pray that the Lord would give us illumination to hear his word and to understand his word. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this word, this living and true word. O God, speak to it, speak to us through it. O God, give us minds to understand, give us hearts to believe, give us lives that will obey your word may we be doers of the word of god and not merely hearers of the word of god and so lord bless our fellowship around your word now that we may better worship and serve and follow our lord jesus christ in his precious name we pray amen Excuse me for taking off my jacket. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So speaks the living and true and abiding word of God. In his book, Embers to Flame, Dr. Harry Reeder, a PCA pastor in Alabama, identifies three models, three church models that are very common in the church today. That is the, the worldwide church. The first model that he identifies uh, is the corporate model or the Wall Street model. This church is very much project-orientated and believes that growth will be achieved by using successful business principles, principles borrowed from the business world or the industrial world. 
A second model that we sometimes see adopted in the church is the Hollywood model, according to Dr. Reader. The Hollywood model believes in entertaining people so that they have a good time and then they will come back and come back and come back. The third model that Harry Reader speaks of is the therapeutic model. Here the emphasis is on providing support for the emotional and psychological needs of the people who come into the church. Let me add a, a fourth model. I think there's a fourth model, and of course there are more models, but I think these are probably the main models. The fourth model that I would add would be the traditionalist model. And this model says, let's do church the way we did it 100 years ago or 150 years ago. In the good old days, now before you get up in arms, do people say that here, Jeff? Get up in arms. Before you get up in arms with me and, and have a, a bone to pick with me at the end of the service, do they say that? They may, they may say that. Uh, let me say there are some good elements in all these models. Each of these models have something important to teach us. They have something help, helpful that we can learn from. But none of them represent a biblical approach to the practice of church. None of them represent a biblical approach to the practice of church. For example, the Bible teaches the church is like a family or the church is like a body. The Bible never teaches that the church is like a business or a profit-making organization. Before I became a pastor, I graduated from business school. Um, I spent some time in industry. The Bible never teaches that the church is like a profit-making organization. Secondly, the Bible teaches that the church is to glorify and worship God, to nurture the saints, to convert the lost, but not to entertain sinners. It's a subtle distinction, but our business is not entertainment, but the worship of God, the nurture of the saints, and the conversion of the lost by the grace of God. And of course, while we as the people of God are to be a loving people, we are to love our neighbor, we are to love our enemy, we are to love our friends, our brothers, we are to care for those around us. There is a danger when our fellowship is simply distinguished by therapy. Um, because the focus then will become you or me rather than the Lord. With a strictly therapeutic model, there is a pernicious problem, and that is the focus comes of the Lord Jesus Christ onto the people and their needs and their feelings and their wants and their desires. And of course, in terms of the traditionalist approach, the traditionalist approach is problematic because it ties the practice of the church to my experience or your experience. It ties the practice of the church to our experience or the experience of our grandparents or the experience of our parents. 
At first, that may seem a good thing. That's a, it may seem like that is a good way to do church. To do it according to your experiences or my experiences or the experiences of our parents. At first, that may appear to be a good thing. But if we want a church that is truly historic in terms of the continuity of the faith, surely we need to go much further back to the teaching and preaching of our Lord and his apostles and the experience of the first century church rather than an early 20th century church or a late 19th century church. Do you understand what I'm saying? No? Okay, good. Thank you. So if, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the practice of the church will be important to you. So what are the principal and principal practices of the church? What graces and disciplines are vital for her existence? There are many things that we do as the church that are good and right and fine. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm, ask, I'm asking this morning, what are the most important things that we do as the church? What are the things that are vital to her existence? And I believe here in Acts chapter 2, it's not the only place in the Bible we could turn. We could, we could do a Bible drill this morning and go to many passages. We don't have time to do that. But I believe that Dr. Luke gives us a clear and succinct answer to that question here in Acts chapter 2. What are the principal and principal practices of the New Testament church, the New Covenant church? He gives us four, four things, four elements, four graces, four disciplines, four practices that we see these first believers um, working around first notice verse 42 we read about the apostles teaching they were devoted they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching secondly the fellowship that is the fellowship of the believers thirdly to the breaking of bread whatever that means and then fourthly and lastly prayer to the prayers I know this verse is very important to Hope Church because this church is right on your website. Or, excuse me, this verse, this actual Bible verse is right on your website, right? When I was looking at your website last week, I noticed this verse and I thought, wonderful. This is, this is an important verse, I believe. Very important verse. As I've already said, the day of Pentecost had just happened. The apostle Peter had stood up in the temple courts and preached that great message that um, char charted the, the history of Israel and their unfaithfulness to God. And we read that the Spirit of God moved in the hearts of the people and cut them to the heart. And, and Peter brought to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, of how Christ was crucified for them. 
He shed his blood that they might come to know God as their Father and as their Savior. And we read there in verse 31 that 3,000 people on that occasion were added to the Jerusalem church. That must have been a, a tremendous experience to the New Testament church there in Jerusalem, a church that prior to Pentecost was simply 100 or 200 people, we imagine. And suddenly in a, in a day, this church is multiplied <clears throat> and has thousands of members and one of the first pictures we have of this New Testament church is here in verse 42. And we're told that they are devoted. They are devoted to these four things. So let's look at these four things in the, in the time that remains this morning. <clears throat> Number one, Dr. Luke the writer of Acts informs us that this early church, this church of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that met in Jerusalem, they were noted for their commitment to the word of God. The way he puts it is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching means the word of God because the apostles were teaching the word of God. The apostles like Peter and John and James, these men would have taught the people from the Old Testament scriptures. And not only that, these men who were apostolic apostles, these men who had been called and set aside by the Lord himself, were men who were given authority to establish the New Testament church. These men in the coming days would, would travel throughout the nations and plant churches and not only would they preach from the Old Testament scriptures, but these men were given the ability and the authority to speak what Jesus had taught them. They were the apostles of Jesus. They were the ambassadors of Christ on earth. And of course, the books of the New Testament, the 27 books that we have, were written by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of them, more than half of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. That's what it means to be an apostle. One of the very chief things that an apostle does is that he speaks for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his words are counted to be the very words of God. Men and women cannot do that today. Men and women cannot speak for God today in the sense that the apostles spoke for God. Paul's words were written down as he was carried along by the Spirit of God. And today we have the epistles of Paul, which are counted as Holy Scripture. And so these people in this Jerusalem church were devoted to the apostles' teaching because the teaching of the apostles was the word of God. Now notice the adjective that's used there, in our English Bible, and they devoted, they devoted, or in some of the older translations, maybe it's two words, continue, continued steadfastly in. It's one word in the Greek, 
It's one Greek verb, and it's a very, very strong verb. It's one of the strongest, excuse me, it's one of the strongest adjectives that you will find in the Greek. And it means to persist in, or to be intently engaged in, or to, con- or to constantly attend upon. This church was intently engaged in the apostles' teaching. Isn't this an important thing for you and I to know as New Covenant believers that this early church in Jerusalem, the believers in this church were intently engaged, constantly attending to the teaching of the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God was central to the worship and life of the church. As it is here in Hope Church, the preaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, is a very central and and primary thing to your worship services. And that was the case in this church in Jerusalem. They not only gave the Word of God intellectual assent, they not only sought to understand it with their minds, but they obeyed it with their lives. I prayed a moment ago that we would not merely be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. We read that in James chapter 1. As believers in the Lord, it's so important that we not only hear the word and study the word and memorize the word, but that we do the word. And all of those things combined, beginning with the reading continuing with the study and the memorization should lead us ultimately to the obedience. And that's what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's what it means to be devoted to the word of God. And so if we wish to follow their example, the example of this first Christian church, this is how we are to be as Christian people with the word of God. Verse 42 tells us that they continued steadfastly. They were constant. They were tenacious in the application of the word of God to their lives as individuals and as a church. I attended a Christian wedding uh, recently and the scriptures were not read In the ceremony, as part of the worship service, as part of the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, the scriptures, the word of God, were were not given a place. Now they were alluded to, they were referred to on occasions. And my wife, Jessica, and I talked about this on the way home in the car. We said there was something lacking in the service. And the thing that was lacking was the word of God. God's word was not given its place. Some may think it's a small thing, but I think it's a big thing. The Word of God needs to be central and primary in the worship of God and in the fellowship of God's people. Because it's through the Word of God and it's through the preaching of the Word of God 
that people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the word of God, the preaching and the teaching of the word of God that the saints are built up in the holy faith. It's through the word of God that the truth is taken to the nations. Dear people, the word of God is where God gives us life and strength. As a church, as the Presbyterian Church in America, we have a high view of the word of God. If you go on the website of our denomination, the PCA website, you will notice that the the motto of our denomination is, the very first thing is committed to the scriptures. Committed to the scriptures. This first New Testament church was committed to the word of God. And I know that Hope Church here in Boston Spa is committed to the scriptures. And that's a good thing. Your elders are committed to the scriptures. The leaders of our congregation, our congregations need to be committed to the scriptures to ensure that the members and the boys and girls and the young people are raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In our presbytery, I sit on the leadership committee and the leadership committee are responsible for interviewing pastors who come into the New York State Presbytery. It's important that we do that. These men may have graduated from a seminary, but it's important that when they come into the churches, the congregations of our presbytery, it's important that they're examined so that we know that these men are faithful and committed to the word of God. Not only was this church committed to the word of God, but secondly, they were committed to the fellowship of the believers. You see, the, the adjective at the beginning of verse 42 applies to each of the graces or disciplines of the church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were noted for their devotion to one another and obviously to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this a beautiful picture? They were noted for their devotion to one another. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, and right around verse 33 or 34, we're told that the Lord said to his apostles, I give you a new commandment, and you know the commandment, to love one another. And that's exactly what verse 42 is telling us here. They loved one another. They were devoted to one another. They continued steadfastly in caring for one another. There was a commitment in this New Testament church, in this Jerusalem church, to the fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship in the Greek is uh, uh, koinoa, which simply means to share, to share. They were a people who shared with one another. And as we read through the passage, we see that they shared in various ways. They shared in their homes. They spent much time in their homes with one another. They went to the, to the temple courts together. They broke bread together. If anyone had, had physical needs or temporal needs, 
they would sell possessions, they would sell their belongings, and they would distribute the proceeds to those who had needs. So that certainly is part of the sharing. But I think the fellowship that this verse speaks of goes beyond that. I think the fellowship of the believers that is spoken of here um, certainly includes that, but I think it refers to something else. I think the fellowship that is spoken of here, the fellowship or the fellowship of the believers, I think it speaks of their unity in Christ. I think it speaks of their oneness in the gospel. I think it speaks of their love for the Lord their God and their love for one another. Now, obviously, that manifests itself in their caring for one another in practical ways. But the fellowship that verse 42 speaks of is much deeper and much more profound. It speaks of their commitment to the doctrine of Christ. It speaks to the great beliefs that they shared in common and which was shaping this New Testament church. You know, as, as Christian believers, as believers in the triune God, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, a Lord Jesus who came into this world who lived a perfect life, who, who made an atoning sacrifice for us, who, 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 who rose again, who was exalted and who ascended to the right hand of the Father, a Savior whom we believe is coming again to judge the living and the dead. All these things that we hold in common make us who we are. They shape our fellowship. They shape our churches, don't they? Um, and I believe this is what Luke is talking of here in verse 42. These first Christians were cut to the heart by the preaching of Peter. They were so moved by the Holy Spirit that they put their faith in Christ alone and they were added to this New Testament church in Jerusalem. And we read here in verse 42 and following the results of that. They met together with one another daily. They met daily in their homes. They met daily in the temple courts. They broke bread together. They were devoted to the teaching of the word of God. They were devoted to one another. And as we see, we'll see, they were devoted to fellowship and to prayer. It's a wonderful picture such was their commitment to Christ and to Christ's people that there is a profound regularity in their meeting together, in their sharing together, in their being together. You and I may never meet again. And because of that, we don't we don't really have a relationship. But your friends and your family, the family that is Hope Church here, you have a relationship with the people of this fellowship. 
And the more time that you spend together in the fellowship of, of, of believers, the more you love one, one, love one another, the more commitment that you have for one another. And it shapes the people that you are. It shapes who you are as the people of God. If we are people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that gospel will transform us in many ways. And one of the ways in which it will transform us is that it will give us a love for God's people. It will give us a commitment to God's people. We will share with God's people in all kinds of ways. This is one of the ways in which the gospel manifests itself in the lives of the people of God. When professing Christians only come to fellowship with God's people once a month or twice a month, is there not something wrong with that? If God's people are family and if we love them, then we care about them and we want to be with them, don't we? If I were to say to my wife, well, I'll see you next Monday between three and four and I'll see you the following week on the Tuesday, I wonder how she would respond. Do we treat the Lord like that? Do we treat the Lord's people like that? Devoted to one another, devoted to the word of God, and thirdly, devoted to the breaking of bread. I won't spend a whole lot of time on this third point, although it's something I could spend a lot of time on. The breaking of bread here is a technical term found in the book of Acts by Dr. Luke. It simply means, I believe it means the Lord's Supper. Uh, my doctoral work was done on this very issue, in fact, the, the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and so... I could, as they say, wax eloquent for the next few hours, but I'm going to stop myself right there. Um, but it's interesting that, that Luke should include this. Well, it's more than interesting. I think in the New Testament church, in the, in, in the 21st century church, I think the sacraments, or let me use another term for them, gospel ordinances. Gospel ordinances are things that God has given us that show us the gospel. Mostly we receive the gospel by hearing the gospel. But when, when, when a baptism is performed or when we come to the Lord's table, we see the gospel. And I truly believe this, that in the 21st century church, this was not, al this was not always the case. This was not the case in the 16th century church. This was not the case in the 17th century church. This was not the case in the 18th century church. But in the 21st century church, baptism and the Lord's Supper occupy a much lower place in the life of the church than they once did. And I say that simply for this reason. When I read about how the Lord's Supper and baptism was observed and administered and practiced 
in the life of churches two and three and four hundred years ago, it wasn't practiced like it is today. There was a devotion and a commitment to these two gospel ordinances in a way that is lacking in the church today because they were understood to be gospel ordinances. They were understood to be signs and seals of the gospel of God's grace. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's atoning sacrifice. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the fellowship and the communion that we have, not just with one another, but with our living Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper points us to that great banquet feast that we will share with the Lamb of God in glory. The Lord's Supper is a continual reminder of those great covenant promises that God has made to us and made to all his people through the gospel. And yet these things in the 21st century church are passed over very briefly. But this first century church in Jerusalem were devoted and committed and steadfastly continued in the breaking of bread. Someone's probably thinking, well, what about the issue of frequency? Um, I think the evidence points very strongly to the fact that this first century church um, administered the supper much more frequently than the modern church does. That's my opinion. Um, they were devoted to the supper. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the, to the apostles' teaching. And fourthly and lastly, this church was noted for their prayers. They were noted for their prayers. One of my, I might say, mentors, um, as a pastor is the Reverend Eric Alexander. Has anyone ever heard of Eric Alexander? Um, Eric Alexander is a, an old man today, but he's a, a Scotsman, and he was the pastor of St. George's Tron for about 30 years in Glasgow. And uh, Eric Alexander is a great servant of the Word of God. And he has recently written a little book on prayer. I think it was, when I say recently, I think it was published in 2012 or 2013. It's simply entitled Prayer, A Biblical Perspective on Prayer. And in that book, Eric Alexander uh, says something like this, and I'm, I'm quoting from memory. Forgive me if the quotation is not exactly right. He talks about the malaise that exists in the modern church, the spiritual, the spiritual malaise. And you know what a malaise is? A sleepiness, a, a lukewarm attitude. And Eric Alexander talks about the, the spiritual malaise 
that exists in the 21st century church, the evangelical church, and he makes this point, and I think, it's, I think this point is staggering. He says that one of the chief marks of the malaise, the spiritual malaise in the evangelical church in the West is the poverty of the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting, the ministry of prayer in most churches is one of the weakest ministries of the church. One of the poorest attended meetings of the church. And yet if we believed in the sovereignty of God as we profess to do, if we believed in the sovereignty of God, it would be the best attended meeting in the church. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you, believe, if you and I believed in the sovereignty of God, we would be people of prayer. But we don't and we're not. We don't and we're not, despite what we say. And hence we see the church in these United States and we see the church across Europe, Western Europe, and I can speak because I've pastored on both continents. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is so weak. And I'm talking about the evangelical church. The church is so, so weak today because the church is not a praying church. The people of God today are not a praying people. We're not teaching our children to pray. We're not teaching our young people to pray. It's not one of the graces and one of the disciplines of the people of God today as it has been in bygone days. Sad to say it is. You see, Luke doesn't mention in terms of this first century church in Jerusalem Luke doesn't mention their big budget they didn't have one he doesn't mention their missions conferences he doesn't mention their VBS or their impressive ministry team he talks about their prayer meeting he tells us the people got together and they prayed They got together and they listened to the apostles teaching the word of God. They got together around the Lord's Supper. They loved one another. They were committed to the fellowship of the believers. John Knox, another Scottish preacher, was the pastor of St. Giles in Edinburgh for many years. And of course, his nemesis was Mary, Queen of Scots. If you're trying to work out my accent, my accent is Scots-Irish. All my, all my kin are Scots people. I'm a Scotsman who was born in the north of Ireland. Um, but Mary, Queen of Scots, the, the, the Roman Catholic Queen of Scotland, have you heard of Mary, Queen of Scots? She once said of John Knox and about his prayers. Do you know what she said about his prayers? She said, I'm more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than I am of all the armies of all the world. 
Mary was a great enemy of Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, if you know your English history. Mary and Elizabeth were great enemies, and of course Elizabeth eventually took Mary's head. But that's what Mary said of the prayers of John Knox. Does America have a man who can pray like that? How America needs a man who can pray like John Knox. How Scotland today needs a man who can pray like John Knox. How America needs a man who can pray like Elijah, the prophet of old. We had our VBS um, last week at First Prayers, and I was my wife and I were teaching the Bible lessons, and we were sharing with the children about the great prophet Elijah, how on one occasion he prayed. And it stopped raining for three and a half years. And we read in the New Testament, in the book of James, that Elijah was, and this is astounding, Elijah was a man just like us. So in one sense, we're not to put Elijah on a pedestal. Elijah was a man who had weaknesses and fears. And yet Elijah was a man who prayed. And my, did he pray because it stopped raining for three and a half years. He prayed with fervency and with passion. And God used his prayers and God worked through his prayers. People want me as a pastor to be a lot of things. And some of those things are good and some of those things are not so good. But one of, the, one of the things I want me to be, excuse my grammar, is I want to be a man of prayer. It's taken me a lot of years to work this out. But as a pastor, but more importantly, as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, I need to be a man of prayer. I need to be a man of the word of God. I need to be a man who loves the people of God. My people, as a pastor I speak, my people need to know that I love them. As a Christian man, my friends, my family, my neighbors need to know me as a man of love, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in Love. And these are the things we're told by Dr. Luke. These are the things that principally and principally marked out this first church in Jerusalem. I think we would do well in Boston Spa or in Schenectady or wherever people meet together in the name of Christ. I think we would do well to be more committed to these things because these are the ordinary things through which God works in a supernatural way to build up his people, to build up his church. 
And the Lord, verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Because, by the grace of God, God was adding to their number because they were a loving people and a praying people and a people committed to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us, O God, by your spirit to be a people who increasingly so are committed to your word and to prayer and to one another and to the sacraments. O God, as Christians, we have many responsibilities upon us. We have many demands upon our time. But Lord, help us to do these main things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing.